You're listening to For Your Consideration, the political podcast, with your hosts, Wesley, Pinkston, and Malone. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to For Your Consideration, the political podcast. Uh, I'm Wesley, your host, Hello. and I'm here again with uh, Malone and Pinkston, if y'all want to say hey. hey. And uh, today we're going to be kind of diving deep into the, the far left and what like like far left liberalism is and that kind of thing. And we have our guest for uh, this episode. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Eric. I am a senior here at UT. I'm studying psychology and English and I am, uh, I'm a lefty, resident lefty. All right. So what we're going to do is kind of just Eric's going to give us a brief description of what all his beliefs are and where he lies on like kind of like the general topics of what's going on. And then me, Malone and Pinkson are going to start asking him questions based on like certain topics that are relevant. And he's going to delve a little deeper and we're going to play devil's advocate and just kind of pick his brain a little bit. So yeah, sure. So um, you want to just give us a brief rundown of what leftism uh, is. By and large is what it sounds like. It's the far left. Uh, It differs. A lot of people get it confused with liberalism, uh, which tends to be more like, more moderate if that makes sense like towards the center um so leftism would be the further end of that spectrum so to speak um i personally consider myself on the relatively far left um more or less like center left on for all the political compass sort of nomenclature um yeah uh pretty pretty much left on issues vote democrat i guess i don't know all right um malone can can start if he wants to ask eric a question we'll kind of go down the line malone pinks right, me and sure. pop in when we need to so, so uh i did some little investigation before this and i uh i found out that you were pretty a pretty sub, uh supporter of bernie before the election yeah it was, right? uh, i liked um a lot of what bernie had to say yeah and if he had been running against trump then there'd been an easy choice, of course. So, since he didn't win the primaries, how hard was it for you to settle for Biden over? Yeah, Bernie? sure. So, um, I think I I went through sort of what a lot of Bernie supporters went through uh, when Bernie lost the primaries and we uh, we wound up with Joe Biden. Uh, I am vehemently anti-Biden. I do not agree with several of his policies. I don't really like him as a person. Uh, so it was a little hard for me to get behind uh, his campaign in terms of the presidency. And so for the longest time, I was pretty adamant that I would vote like Green Party or not vote at all or something along those lines. Uh, but I did wind up coming around and realizing that it's basically more about like damage control at this point. Like I do I don't think uh, Joe Biden will be a net overall positive for a lot of people, um, but he will be more positive for more people than Trump would have been. So I, I view it as damage control at this point. So essentially he was just the lesser. Yeah, evil. essentially like that's the, the old adage. And I don't really enjoy that as a, as a sort of point in, in a candidate's favor. Um, I think it gets yeah. thrown around a lot and it's not particularly useful. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, like, I just didn't want Trump anymore, man. Like, I'm so tired. <laughs> yeah. 
I think a lot of us had a very similar scenario where maybe we didn't really like either one, but we knew which one we liked a whole lot less. And so practically you have two choices. And so, you know, voting, you know, third party to an extent is, doesn't really do a lot because realistically they don't have a chance of winning. And so it's like, you've got to like choose the one that you want in power more because you know the other essentially one, the yeah. two choices. Uh, a lot of what people have said um, in uh, terms of mm. a lot of people I've talked to in, uh, in terms of voting third party is essentially like you're not electing a third party candidate to win you're electing them to get 5% of the vote when that's reasonable so they can get in debates and have more representation for something outside the two party system um and so this year it's really not like we are at such a polarized point in the election or we were at such a polarized point in the election that it wasn't realistic that any uh third party candidate would get five percent of the vote and thus voting third party was essentially meaningless and useless all right pink smith uh, uh, you got a question off the top uh, of your i head. thought you of can, this you can ask I, it's a little off topic, I guess, but I guess a two-parter question. Of the, all of the U.S. presidents that have been so far, which one is your personal favorite, and also which one do you think had policies similar most to your beliefs, if that's not sure. the same so, president for personal both? favorites. I've talked with Wesley a lot about this in the tier lists of presidents and whatnot. Uh, I'm not a particular fan of most if any u.s presidents but i think the one that i can respect the most as a human being is jimmy carter uh i'm a huge fan of what he has done post-presidency um i'm woefully uh uninformed about a lot of what he did during his terms or term as president um but i mean like the guy builds houses i think that's pretty like he does stuff with habitat for humanity i think that's respectable um just being quiet building houses. I like that uh, about Jimmy Carter. Uh, one that uh, lines most closely with my beliefs. I, I struggle with that question a little bit because a, I don't know a lot about like some of the more not obscure presidents, but like less talk about presidents. Um, like rather for Hayes, like Taft and whatnot. I just don't know enough about them. Uh, but I, I think I'm further like, America is in this weird sort of uh, place where, like, I am considered far left in America, and I'd probably be considered, like, left in a lot of other countries just because of how our policies are. And so a lot of the presidents in the past have reflected that sort of uh, uh, centrism, I guess, is the the word I'd want to use. Um, And so I, I really just don't align super closely with any one president. Uh, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna jump in here, and uh, I don't know if you've read a lot about FDR, but I think from like a, a like a social policy standpoint, I think just from what you've told me and what we've talked about, um, just to give people kind of a perspective, even though FDR was a while back, he had a lot of free like people thought he was like you know socialist and all that kind of stuff so i think like you know the social welfare program like social security tba like kind of all that stuff that he did in the economic policies to rebuild after the great depression was um 
probably something that you can put yourself in line with a lot, like pretty, yeah, from, from um, like a president FDR that everybody like, knows kind of standpoint. Uh, would, would probably be the person I fall most closely with, uh, just in terms of uh, policy uh, positions. Um, huge fan of social uh, social programs, and FDR definitely like the New Deal. Uh, definitely reflects a lot of my ideals, and so that, that's probably my answer. Though I, I'm not 100% informed about a lot of other presidents. I, I mean, I just okay. have like a I'm, comment that you had said that like there's a lot of you know centrism in the American presidency. I kind of didn't realize that till now. Like on a scale of all other countries and what their governments can look like, if for the entirety of the 20th century the farthest left. You know, for example, president we have was FDR. If the most farthest right, for example, it was Reagan. You know, that's not a huge like change. The, the most of the presidents do seem to be more, at least, respective to American pol- like the president's policies usually are narrow in terms of like one to the other compared to other. Right. Countries, um, so to speak. Yeah, it's, you look at the delta between the mo- the furthest left and the furthest right president, it's really not that big. Um, which I think uh, I think most presidents mm-hmm. are primarily interested in keeping the status quo by and large. <laughs> and for that reason, you'll never have um, you'll never have a Democratic president that like wants to push things further left and be all in on progressivism. Like, even Joe Biden isn't that far left. He's basically a neo-lib, so. Mm. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to caveat into kind of like some more specific topics since we got like the broad spectrum of it. So me and Eric have talked a lot about it and we're just going to go straight off the bat into like one of, (laughs) one of Eric's big topics uh, involving the police. So. Eric, from what you've told me, you're you're in favor of just getting rid of the police, like the abolish the police. And if you could expand on that and let us know why why you believe that and why other people believe that, so people can get a deeper look into it, other than just the conservative yeah, sure. media. So, oh my God, they want uh, anarchy. The police state in America uh, is this a kind of thing. huge uh, institution. I think that's pretty apparent. Uh, it's it's. When we say abolish the police, what we what we mean, it, so abolish the police is like the soundbite, right? So, um, what the actual quote unquote plan would be uh, hmm. would be to sort of defund the police as the other soundbite, and so take money from uh, the police state and sort of distribute that to uh, positions that would be mm. equally if not more qualified to handle things the police do like social workers would be a huge uh, target for that sort of um, idea so the thought being that we basically ask our police force in America to do simply too much and as such we at, at the very least overload them with things to do um, which can create pretty tense situations and, and create a uh, unfavorable uh instances so the thought would be we can take more work off of their plate and give it to people who are equally if not more qualified to do their job uh in that regard so like handling mental health uh crises and uh things things along that those lines like autism and uh 
uh, things of that nature would be better handled by social workers, I think. So on, uh, but for the police, so let's say, you know, like we cut, you know, we take the load off of what they have to do. What do you want them to still do? Do you want them to like respond to like crimes, like break-ins or what specifically do you think the police should be more focused on if, if let's say we got social workers to maybe de-escalate a domestic, like a domestic kind of violence or like an argument, for instance, and stuff like that. So what do you think the sure. police specifically um, would be I, I still better at doing the are if they could just focus on to that handle thing. things like violent offenses, um, like active shooter situations absolutely should be handled by uh, some form of police force, whether that's the existing one we have now or some reimagined, redesigned uh, sort of unit to handle that. Um, I think that's basically the big thing. I would want the newly, uh, the, the defunded police to handle, so to speak. Um, beyond that, I haven't refined it, refined my ideas super much, but like, um, like I, I just don't think like a nonviolent offenses need to be handled by the police. Sure. That's fair. So another, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Yes. And uh, so, you know, like state troopers and police, they can pull you over for speeding, right? And so um, there's always the reason they kind of walk up to you with their hand on their gun other than to try to be intimidating sometimes is because they have no idea what's going to be in this car that they just pulled over. This could be, this could be a violent offender that's running from like trying to escape the state or, you know, running from a crime that he just committed. So in regards to like pulling people over, do you still think that should be a police handled thing just because of the, the possibility that it could result in violence? Or do you think that some other, maybe like, create a new piece of the Department of Transportation because I think that's what state troopers are under to handle like um, speeding tickets and pulling people over. Do you still think that should be with police just because of the possibility sure, of I think, um, violence, even though I think that's probably percentage-wise pretty the, uh, the most gray area here because, like you said, like there could be uh, people going on drug busts and they could be like like gang members or something. Like We just don't know what's in the car. It could be harmless. It could be anything. Um, and my sort of knee-jerk reaction to that is, like, I don't want the police handling routine traffic stops simply because, like, the presence of an authority figure, not an authority figure, but a, uh, a guard, let's say, like, a, a person with a gun in a position of authority um, sort of, like, dealing with these situations of, like, it, what could be an everyday, like, member of society, like, taillights or taillights. Excuse me. Taillight is out, uh, and then you have this guy with a gun walking up, being intimidating, like you said. And I think that's a net negative um, sort of situation. But on the other hand, like you could have, um, you could, like I said, have a gang member, which would be I would want a uh, the proper authorities to handle that. Um, so I think that is a harder issue, and I'm not sure I have a fully fleshed out answer for that. Um, my inclination would be to say that if we can take the load off of police officers in uh, other areas, we can better train them to handle um, situations like routine traffic stops. Because like you look at, um, you look at all these instances of people being shot 
during routine traffic stops, like when they didn't have a gun. Like Philando Castile is a uh, really important example of that. And um, I think if we can better train them to handle situations like that, uh, then that would be the ideal situation. And uh, that accompanies um, parceling out their work to other uh, other individuals. Yeah, that cool. hypothetical. All right, if Malone, Malone, you got one. So, let's just say, what if someone's like, I don't know, brother, sister, uh, cousin, someone with like a mental disability or like a mother, uh, a father who has like dementia or Alzheimer's or something? Mm-hmm. They say, like, what if one of them walked out the door, right? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, they were going, they just left while you were gone, right? So now there's a missing person, right? Do you think it would be better for the police or for your social workers? Oh, I would absolutely want. Um, if it's feasible, I would mm. want uh, social workers on that uh, 100% of the time. Like, I think uh, police officers have a less than great track record of dealing with individuals with mental health issues. Um, like, there are people with autism who simply cannot communicate their needs uh, and sometimes that uncertainty with police officers and miscommunication can lead to individuals getting hurt. Whereas social workers have seen things like this, like hundreds of times over. Uh, so as far as like search and rescue goes, I'm like, I'm sure you can make uh, like a task force designed to find missing individuals. Um, and you could work with like, you could work in coordination with law enforcement and social workers and, um, sort of get them where they need to be with those individuals, but I would absolutely want social workers dealing with the individual themselves. All right. And I had another question. So, so I know, I'm not sure we've all seen the, uh, the George Floyd video, right? Okay. And so the, when he's like basically kneeling on his neck, right. And you have all the people around him. And they're basically helpless, right? They can't do anything, right? Because it's the law, right? Do you think there should be something in place to let, like, citizens, like, not like a citizen's arrest, but something to, like, so they can step over the line and, and uh, get in situations like that to save someone's life? That's interesting. Um, I think, so, the George Floyd case is, is unique, Um because I think there are, like, like you said, there are a lot of individuals watching. Um, I think partially, I think why people didn't help in the George Floyd case is sort of twofold. Um, we talk in psychology a lot about the, the bystander effect, and I'm sure you can gather what that is uh, just by the name. It's where um, people, like a, a, a crowd of people watch uh, something awful happening that they, any one of them could take care of. But because there are so many, um, so many people in the situation watching it, there's sort of a diffusion of responsibility, and so that leads to nothing getting done. Um, so that's partially to blame. Uh, like you said, the laws uh, surrounding uh, people intervening in police uh, arrests and situations and whatnot is uh, uh, another detractor. I would want... The thing is, like, the George Floyd case just shouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, there shouldn't, like, there shouldn't be a need for um, individuals to step in. And I think, like, um, like, yeah, we should, 
probably have some sort of law that allows like at least questioning and videotaping of officers and uh, punishment. Like so, sorry, this gets I I, uh, I get in my head about this, but uh, um, like I would want accountability. I think the main thing is accountability. Um, Derek Chauvin should absolutely have to answer for what he did, and I do not think uh, what has currently, like, what has happened to him uh, is enough, basically. And so I think that's sort of reflective of my, my belief is that we shouldn't have to have citizens intervening with the police. We should already have a system in place uh, that holds them accountable if need be. So, like, body cams should never be turned off, and if they are, I immediately uh, default to the to the person being arrested in cases of police brutality like i i think that's sort of what i would want to see rather than a law introduced uh to give citizens a bit more power in that instance i think i'd rather have a more systemic uh umbrella of accountability um can you all still hear me i think my mic might have cut out okay so we're good i'm gonna step in and uh so i think a big problem with um investigating police is it's kind of like them investigating themselves so you have like a conflict of interest there. So I think one of the big issues is having a like judicial and like justice system that isn't linked in with law enforcement since they're kind of under the same umbrella in most scenarios. Maybe you need to create like a specific subset of the like the judicial system to prosecute cases of police brutality and stuff. So there's no conflict of interest, like to say the police's bosses just kind of pardoning them even though it's pretty obvious that if this wasn't everybody else can see that this was wrong but because they work in under pretty much the same umbrella they kind of get off scot-free because it's you know if that makes sense yeah absolutely i absolutely believe that uh police policing themselves is not uh conducive to fixing the issues we sort of see in our society i think that's a huge uh problem with what's going on all right, Pinkson, you got any, you got any questions? Uh, I suppose I would say uh, that what you guys had said to kind of remind, uh, caused me to think of something almost like uh, how, you know, if you say, uh, you know, a lie detector test, even in a courtroom, that immediately basically throws up the case. And like, or how like Miranda writes, if you don't say them, then regardless of how the or what the individual was arrested for, you got to let them go. I could potentially see one day body cams being a thing of like, if there's no body cam recording of the arrest, you can't prosecute them almost to that extent. But uh, I suppose I was going to say in certain situations, do you think it would be possible or feasible to increase uh, defendants, families ability? For example, if somebody was like uh, arrested for a crime and them or their lawyer or their family is, saying that it was not for just reason that maybe there was some other external basis, you know, race or something that caused them to be arrested for this crime that maybe they didn't necessarily commit or that maybe a crime is it followed upon because the police force is not the side. It's like worthy. And that might be because of their bias. Should there be better appeal processes where, you know, somebody can go over the police department's head and say, we want you to investigate this or re-examine this. So, yeah. So, in some sort of way, reaction would say like, "Yeah, we should 
try to expand people's ability to operate within the legal system um, because it's just not like I don't I don't appreciate how our legal system is sort of like pay to win if <laughs> to use a that sort of term where like yes you will be appointed a lawyer if you can't afford one but you might not have the ability to. Uh, pursue certain legal options just based on your financial status. Uh, so by and large, yes, I would um, I would like to see more uh, things put in place to help people um, sort of be able to defend themselves to get the uh, justice that they deserve and everything. I am not sure how I would go about doing that, but knee-jerk, yes, I would like more ability for people to um, appeal things of whatever nature, like racial uh, injustice, I think people should basically just have more options in general. All right. So I think everybody, uh, anybody have more questions about the police in general before I move on to kind of the next topic? Uh, Before you move on, uh, my phone's about to die, so I'm gonna change to external microphone. I'm just making okay. sure before I, you know, you guys keep going, and then I pop back in. I can't hear anybody, so I'm gonna do like a ask somebody to do a sound check okay. before we come in, or before we resume. All right, we'll give him a second. Right. I, uh, can you still hear us? Uh, I can still hear you, Wesley. What about uh, Austin? Yeah, Eric? we're good. Hello. Cool. All right. Um, I'm going to move on to, I think, another big talking point from like a like um, like a left wing standpoint is universal health care. I think it's moving more broadly into just kind of the left in general. So um, if uh, if you have like I don't really have a question on it just yet. So, Eric, if you want to explain exactly what like you would like to see out of the health care system and how and how you would kind of like to see see that be implemented and how it would kind of happen and transition from like private insurance, what we have now to more of a met like a healthcare for all kind of thing, if that makes sure. sense. Um, so I am not the most well-read person in the world. Um, I won't pretend to be, I don't really have a uh, direct plan to transition from uh, sort of privatized healthcare to this public option. Um, it involves a lot of things that I'm frankly just unfamiliar with. Uh, the healthcare system is big and scary and confusing and everything, and I am by no means an expert on it. Um, but I can sort of uh, talk about the philosophical sort of uh, underpinnings of Medicare for all, and that I think healthcare should be like, I don't think people should die because they are poor. I think that's sort of an absurd, callous, and inhumane uh, sort of claim um, that we've sort of put people's lives uh, to this sort of monetary value of if you can pay for um, pay for better health care, then you should be able to pay for higher quality health care. I think that's absurd. Um, so while I don't really know how we go in America from private options to public options, I think like you can look at what other places that already have Medicare for all places like the Scandinavian countries, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, all those good places. Um, 
and sort of look at what they're doing. And so I think, if I am not mistaken, I think what they're doing is they've sort of got higher taxes um, just on individual on an individual level um, that helps to pay for these social programs. Um, sort of how they like how they treat their poor is uh, funded by uh, taxes and everything. And so um, you don't have sort of the super rich in those sorts of places like you do in America where the uh, top 1% controls X amount of wealth. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's sort of like uh, not taking away from those people, but taxing them at a higher rate, a sort of progressive tax uh, would be the way to start to go about to bring these options uh, into society, I guess. Okay. Uh, Malone, you got anything that you want to kind of yeah. So what would you say to those people who always bring up the argument when it comes to universal health care that, you know, there's going to be a long line and you're going to die waiting to get to actually see a doctor, you know, because everyone gets the same basic health care. Sure. Um, you know what I mean? So I think, like, I've heard the comparison to places like Great Britain um, with that sort of uh, idea where you'll die in line, waiting in line. Um, and I do think like some people will, um, ultimately like that's, that's sort of an unfortunate reality, right? Like we can't, um, we can't have 100% of people be treated instantly, right? That's just not feasible. Um, and that sucks. Like there's no two ways about it. That sucks. People are probably going to die in this system, but I would, probably say um with no statistics in front of me uh that fewer people would die waiting in line than they would because they can't afford it like you look at um people dying in the streets people who have to ration their insulin because they can't afford their their uh regular dosage um i would much prefer to take a risk i don't know how small or big it is uh that people will um have to wait in line significantly longer than to guarantee people death because they can't afford it do you think there will be a a dip in the quality Uh, i don't see a reason why there should be no um this is sort of like a broader issue that goes along with like education and how we value um, how we, as a capitalist society, sort of deem who gets paid what. Um, but I don't see, unless like you want to uh, bring something up, I don't see why quality of healthcare would dip. I was just thinking of if maybe hospitals, if if like if they just got a surge of people in who before were just you know avoiding going to the hospital because they couldn't afford it, and they just had it like all at once taking a bunch of people as if maybe they would like rush it and not do a, a thorough job like they should and maybe the quality. Oh, I think it's uh this kind of ties into the, uh, sorry to cut you off, but this kind of ties into the, you know, if there's long lines and stuff like that. It's maybe like there's kind of this conflict to where doctors are like, man, we have a lot of people. So we got to treat these people as fast as possible so that we can get to the other people and they won't be waiting for so long. And so that in turn kind of dips, dip. I think that's kind of the argument is if the, if, you know, it takes, a, if there's long lines and people are dying in line and the doctors 
are going to in turn feel bad for that happening and try to rush the process. And I think that's where people think the quality might dip. Sure. That makes sense. Um, I suppose mm. to that, I would probably say like, um, we, we should probably like, in, in my ideal system, we would likely have um, the most urgent cases treated uh, before others. Like um, if you have a guy who's got like a, a head cold or something and a guy who's got, say, a broken arm, I would probably treat the guy with a broken arm before the guy with a head cold. Um, just because one is clearly more urgent oh. than the other. Uh, so I'm not sure how we would like directly implement that idea into uh, something like Medicare for all. I just don't know. I don't have that answer, but um, yeah. I think that's a good, that's, I think that's a good example for um, where you, where you mentioned, you know, pay to win for the judicial system. It's also kind of pay to win for healthcare because how it currently stands is if you, let's say you have a broken arm and then some, some rich guy walks in with a cold, he's probably going to skip you in line yeah, and get treated before you if he has right. better insurance than you. So I think it's, um, so that's, that kind of like lines up to where like, I think a lot of the, the left, the leftist issues are, they kind of want to get rid of this pay to win kind of thing when it comes to education, healthcare, even the judicial system. And they kind of want, because those things, education, uh, health and, um, justice are, pretty much seen as as a basic human right that no one should have like a step above the other person because everyone is equal under the law under you know everybody's everybody has the right to life so everyone's equal and everyone's equal in education so i think that's kind of a broad spectrum of what what like leftists think on a lot of those issues yeah that's that's sort of my big point is that i don't want people to be able to throw money into a system just to be treated quicker or with better quality. I think we want to uh, equal the playing field. So um, and if Pinkson's got anything, I'll let him go. And then I'm going to kind of ask a question if he doesn't have one. Yeah. Uh, I had thought of a thing. I remembered uh, reading a while back that I believe it's both the current White House and the previous one have both, you know, done different efforts to try and tackle rising drug costs. You had, said before i believe one of the more recent ones at least as of about a year ago was that the federal government was thinking of making their own versions of drugs to dump into the market to lower the price and you know do you think that something like that is you know a good start or if is it not even enough or do you think it would help because you know that's obviously a massive problem if people have to ration out their insulin because they can't afford it you know what potentially do you think could be you know done about that sure yeah so um as far as as far as the government uh sort of making their own versions of drugs um that there's probably a lot of like uh things uh woven into sort of what goes along with that that i i just can't imagine right now i'd have to like sort of parse it out piece by piece um so I'm not sure, like, I, I, theoretically, that sounds like a good idea. Um, but I'd want to see, like, more specifics of how that's going to work. Um, I think sort of to reduce the cost of um, sort of these drugs, like, we could 
I think we would probably have to put regulations on how much companies can mark up for them because if because ideally we would have um, we would have the company making profit so they can expand make uh, like expand their operations make more drugs um, make make more and better treatment so I think ideally we'd want profits for the company as well as making it affordable for people. But you look at like what, uh, what insulin costs to make, and it's not very high. I don't have the exact number, but it's not very high. Um, and then these companies charge an exorbitant amount for each dose of insulin. And I think that is absurd that it can simply be marked up that highly. So I would probably want regulations to um, limit their ability to do that. Um, to sort of monopolize drugs uh, that people need to live. And sort of that's, that'd be my, like, uh, my initial uh, idea as far as reducing drug costs. So it's kind of a, I'm going to jump in here. So it's kind of like a, so I think what, what you're saying was like, you know, on like a supply demand scale, um, as the demand for insulin goes up, you know, people, you know, basic economics is like if the demand goes up, you can charge more because the demand's higher. So I think what, what you believe is even though that's kind of like how, you know, people are looking at it from an economic standpoint, that because this is such a, such a needed thing, because people, obviously people can't live without it. So that shouldn't be subject to like companies wanting to take advantage of a high demand for it and therefore, uh, jacking the prices up and up as the demand goes up for it because it's such a basic necessity that this shouldn't be subject to those price increases and stuff. It's just a base set price, maybe based on inflation and the cost to manufacture. Um, maybe that's a good starting point is just, you know, obviously everything should go up kind of with inflation because it's how, you know, that kind of works. So, you know, it just goes up with inflation instead of, and just and keep it low because the, the cost to manufacture is so low that you can still make a profit, stay in business, but people can get the thing that they need to live. Right. Yeah. I think um, you could probably set it out like you can't mark up the, the price from uh, cost of making a drug to um, us. You can't make it past a certain percentage point or something along those lines would probably be the best way to do it. Um, yeah. So it scales with the cost of making it. I think definitely one of the most, I guess, damning things about a lot of the you know prescription companies, the companies that make these drugs, is that they can absolutely scale their production to match demand. If you look at things like the COVID yeah. vaccine, I think it's between... I think you're uh, you're cutting it out. It's not aren't necessarily yeah, exactly the same in terms scaling up production, but they can demand there's a reason to and it seems that it's kind of easy for them to sit on the laurels and go oh well it's not worth it for us to make insulin since it's kind of a known thing so we're just not going to make enough of it or try to raise the price to not sell as much to try to make more money off of what little we make right i think if you're if you're looking at it as a drunk drug company from a purely um capitalistic standpoint you can say well demand is super high so we can 
jack up the price to whatever we want. We basically have a monopoly on this market uh, and people need insulin to survive. So they will have to pay exorbitant amounts of money or face debt. And I think that's uh, sort of what the progressive left is sort of rallying against uh, is this sort of taking humanity out of the equation um, and, and viewing people simply as profit. And in a variety of areas, it's not just healthcare, but in um, sort of all walks of life is just, we don't want people to be viewed as profit or as uh, product productivity machines, essentially. So I think that's, that's sort of just restoring humanity uh, to people. Anybody got anything else involved in healthcare? No. All righty. If um, so, I'm gonna go on probably to the last or second to last topic. If y'all can't think of one, is um, education. And um, obviously, you're pro- uh, Eric. I think you're um, a big supporter of free college, and um, you know that the whole you know like everybody has a right to education. Therefore, people there shouldn't be a barrier to entry of your wallet, and. Um, just if you want to expand on why you think that's a good idea and uh, why you support that. Sure. Yeah. I think, um, questions. I think to start off with, I think free education is a bit of a misnomer. Um, I think I would refer to it more as universal education, uh, along the lines of universal healthcare, gotcha. um, because it's not truly free. And, uh, that's sort of where people like on Fox news sort of get, that twist it's, uh, of the uh, the liberals just want free stuff, right? It's, it's not free. It comes from somewhere. It comes from mm. taxes. It comes from reducing certain um, budgets and whatnot. So that's it, it comes from a place. Um, but as far as uh, free education or universal education, um, yeah, I, I generally say I'm in favor of it. I, um, I think that people should receive roughly a similar standard of quality in terms of education uh, that shouldn't be tied to how much money they are willing to throw at it. Um, And I I think that uh, by and large, we should try to keep all of our members of our society as educated as possible um, just to increase quality of living, I guess. I don't know. Um, That seems like a good idea, having smarter members of society. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm going to play devil's yeah. advocate, and then I'll let, and then Malone and Pinkston can ask their questions. Um, so then there's there's always the argument that you know if we give people if we give everybody a free education, the value of a bachelor's degree is going to decrease. It's kind of like like the arguments like oh if we give everybody free education, then the value of a bachelor's degree is going to become basically the same as a high school diploma, and I think that even if that's the case that's happening anyway, like more and more people are having to go out here and get master's degrees and PhDs and stuff like that. So I don't really think that's a valid argument for that. So, but if you want to expand on what you think about the whole, this decreases the value of a degree, if everybody and their mom can just go out there and get a degree, whether or not they, there's, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. So um, having a bachelor's degree makes like, is sort of becoming less and less marketable as a, as a, uh, a skill for being employed. Um, 
yeah, so that's definitely a consideration with uh, devaluing um, what a master's or a bachelor's or master's degree is worth is certainly happening even now within our lifetimes. Like uh, you'll see, say, job ads for uh, bachelor's degree required $10 an hour. And that's just uh, it's just not sort of what I would consider worth a bachelor's degree. And that's sort of been happening over the past, like I've noticed it over the past few years um in my short lifespan but uh i think i think the idea is that like a bachelor's degree should not be an indicator of ability um for instance i'm a dumbass and i'm going to have a bachelor's degree this summer um (laughs) i am not necessarily more or less marketable than somebody else with a bachelor's degree in psychology and english um but I would hope that my ability is um, sort of outstanding of um, of my sort of certifications. Um, so I would probably have uh, rather than... So I think the, the point behind the statement of uh, a bachelor's degree is becoming less mm-hmm. and less value, valuable is because of employment uh, options. And um, so I think that if we were to move away from having specific uh, um, looking at the looking at education uh, certifications, I'm not sure how I'm wanting to phrase this, but like if we look at less what degree somebody has and more what they can do as a result of that, that degree, I think that's sort of where I'd like to move more. So I would want education to be less of a status symbol and more as more of a, uh, um, a tool to becoming uh, more skilled in a certain area, more knowledgeable. Mm. Long, you got anything involving education? Um, so, so I'm in the military, right? And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna pretend like, you know, I loved my country and I just couldn't wait to serve, right? But uh, I yeah, definitely join for those benefits, right? <laughs> but and but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like shun anyone like wanting free education, right? I'm all for that, right? I think it should be a universal thing. But what would you say to those veterans, you know, who who join for that reason, and then just say they do make education free? Do you think? Like, how would you make, how would you convince people to either join the military at all? Or what would you just say, like, what would be, like, another benefit you would So we're essentially trying to um, keep the benefits, like, we're trying to universalize the benefits of going into the military in terms of, like, education and housing um, to everyone while maintaining um, the, uh, while trying to incentivize people to join the military. Is that sort of what we're trying to do? Yeah. Um, so definitely, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, yeah. I think the U.S. government and military in general tries to market to people, um, say, in lower income areas. I don't think that's a big secret or anything. And so because people sort of not saying you are in the situation, but just people in general um, have been sort of oh, yeah. feeling they have no option. Um, they turn to the military as a way out. And I think that's sort of disappointing would be a word I would use for that. Um, 
because I would want people to have basically every opportunity that everybody else has. Ideally, it's not super feasible, but ideally that would be um, my goal. So I'm not sure there is a way to sort of sweeten the pot for people who want to join the military for these benefits. And so I think if you have an overwhelming um, sort of sense of patriotic duty, then I think you should absolutely join the military. Um, if you love this country, want to defend and serve and everything, I think that's great. I think um, you should be, uh, you should do that if you want to, but I don't think, I don't think the military should be used as a last resort or an escape hatch for anyone. So I'm not sure there is a way to uh, fully incentivize the military um, to people by using education uh, benefits and everything. Um, I don't know. I think um, I, I don't think there's a great way to do that, and I don't think there should be a way to do to uh, incentivize it. If that makes sense. Yeah, I definitely uh, think that's a good point because yeah, yeah, not you know putting on my armchair psychologist hat. Knowing a lot of the people we knew from school, a lot of them, it seemed like they were more doing it for a way out rather than they really, you know, some of them really did love their country and want to serve it, but a lot of them, like, especially the ones that we knew not, I mean, they were there because it was the way out, more or less, for them. Yeah, I think that's just generally a, uh, a I would use the term predatory practice from the, uh, from the military, and I think it's it's sort of, uh, disgusting to not sugarcoat it, but um, I think I would probably try to move away from uh, using uh, lower income families as sort of fodder for the, the military machine. Um, oh. I'm gonna jump in and this, oh, Pixie, you can okay. go ahead. It was, I guess, a question of so, are you? This isn't the actual question. Are you from like Tennessee? I've moved up in Tennessee? around. So my father was uh, actually a, a um, major in the Air Force before retiring. So I grew up. I was born in Arkansas. I moved to Germany when I was very young, and I have lived in the South uh, since I moved back to the states. Uh, I've lived in Tennessee for going on seven years, I believe. Okay. So you graduated high yes, school? Yes, I started uh, high school freshman year. We moved here before my freshman year of high school, and I am uh, going to my senior year of college. Okay. All right. Spe uh, specifically, education, you know, oftentimes, you know, having ways to pay for education outside of just loans or stuff is usually seen as more of a Democrat sort of thing. But I specifically remember when me, Wesley, and Austin were all in high school, Governor Haslam at the time began rolling out Tennessee Promise, where you could do community service hours, and it would pay for community college and tech school and other things like that. I was just going to ask your opinion on that and how it all went. Do you think it was a good idea, specifically coming, especially showing that people don't necessarily have to be of one party to support? Oh, absolutely. Education think, uh, in that way. Tennessee Promise is great. I absolutely love Tennessee Promise. I think um, being able to sort of use. Uh, giving back to the community to further your education. I think that's a wonderful idea. I think it's just nothing but good. Um, and I commend Governor Haslam for that. I think Tennessee Promise was uh, particularly successful. People I know have gone and gotten their associate's degrees and gone on to further their education where they otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to do so. And I think it's just an overall net good. 
Uh, do you think it could potentially be a good platform for other, you know, governors, other states to look at, regardless of their party, and go, we can do something like that as well and help better education? Just in oh yeah, I definitely think that. Um, I think that once, like, with various issues, um, once one state starts doing it and other states begin to sort of copy their practices, I think um, people can view that as sort of a. a uh, test run. And I think Tennessee was a test run for something along the lines of universal education. And um, I absolutely think that other people, other states should, can and should use Tennessee as a model for how to implement that in their own uh, policy making. I'm going to jump in and say that um, UT actually started doing something called UT Promise. It's not exactly like Tennessee Promise, but it gives people under family income of 50k a year, I think. Um, just a, it's a last dollar scholarship, and I'm actually getting that for my entire senior year, and that's saving me upwards of like close to eight thousand dollars in loans. So I think I think that Tennessee Promise, even even the fact that UT is stingy, no offense to UT, but they're stingy. Uh, as stingy as UT is rolling out a plan like that and so many people taking advantage of it and getting, because me, it was really hard to just pay for school every semester. And that's, it's made it just so much easier for me. So I think that's a good idea. But also I'm going to go backtrack a little bit into um, where Eric said the, the predatory practices of like recruiters and stuff. This is really off topic, but I'm just going to throw it out there is I think that recruiters for the, um, the branches of the military should not be allowed in schools. I think people should have to actively go to their office and seek them out instead of being preyed upon by them. Yeah, in, I generally uh, agree with that. School. I think um, that makes sense. I think that would probably be the best solution to make sure um, kids aren't being pressured into joining the military. I think um, I think it just makes sense too. Like uh, having, I think having those. Um, yeah, because like, is available oh, to kids who want like making sure they are accessible to the kids that want it is um, what you'd have to do. But like, I think that's it makes sense because I think Malone didn't you go to the Air Force yourself? Yeah, I went. I, I drove over to Kingston Pike. I went to the Air Force recruiter's office. So, so I don't think I've ever saw an Air Force recruiter in this room. <laughs> So that's all the topics I got, unless y'all got any more that you want Eric to expand on. Um, I think that's pretty good. All right. Well, I guess that'll do it for this episode. So for those of you who actually tune in, just thanks for listening. We appreciate you. You know, just, we're just doing this for fun and um, really hope y'all like it and uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye.